Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. Are there any questions I can answer before we get going here? Yes, ma'am, I saw you first in the middle. Yeah, I was just wondering who came up with the bit about, uh, it's kind of a long-running bit, where we, you ask people from the audience or you ask people for fans uh, to make up names for the ex-president <laughs> so you wouldn't have to say his name anymore. I think we saw, Tom, how did that start? Did we saw, we saw some online, people, or, or did I, we made up some. Well, what happened was... This is Tom Purcell, my showrunner. Tom, come on out here. Like, so what happened was, Stephen, you said emotionally you never want to say his name again. That's right, yeah, yeah. Right, and... That was, I believe that was, uh... After November 5th, 2020, yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, like, in a script that Matt Lappin and I were working on, oh, yeah, we decided right. to just throw it in there and see what happened. Right. Of, like... Um, inviting the audience? Yeah, inviting the audience to do it at this hashtag. Yes, and he I, who must not be, be named. named. Yeah, and then we threw it up there. And, we, and we've got thousands of them yeah, now. Yeah, we were thinking that nobody would really be into it. And, like... Everybody's into, people it. Were into it. So that's how it started. Thank you, Tom. Yes, uh, on the end here, uh, young lady, yes, in the cream jacket or whatever, beige, yes. Oatmeal, hello. Um, I was wondering if there's anything you about filming from home. Anything I miss about filming from home? The commute. <laughs> uh, also, the bar is very close when the show's over. Uh, and also, just uh, hanging, out, hanging out with Ev, you know, hanging out with Evie. Like, it's really nice. When we were, when we were really literally shooting from home, because we shot upstairs in a storeroom for 10 months, too. But for the first five months from home, my crew was my... First, it was my middle son, who was a, you know, radio, television, and film major at Northwestern. And, and so we, when we bugged out and went to South Carolina, we're like, I, need to, I, I, I can't have crew come into my house. We don't know what's going on, because no one knew anything about contagion or anything like that. And Tom goes, isn't your son a radio, television, and film major at Northwestern? Why doesn't he just run everything? And so he was my crew, and then he said, Dad, I won't graduate from college if I keep doing this for you. <laughs> so his younger brother took over, who was a senior in high school, and he did that for a month. And he goes, Dad, I won't graduate from high school if I keep doing this for you. So then Evie took over for the last three months, and that was great. You know, to, all I ever wanted was her as my audience anyway, you know, because the best laughs ever from her. And so she was there, and, and my boys were literally doing their homework while the show was going on, so they never paid attention to the show. They were just getting, you know, cues from, like, I don't know, Kamal or whoever was talking to them on the headsets from up here on the, 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 the virtual control room we had. 
So uh, being with your family, you know, it was like it was like a 19th century where everybody comes down to the mill to help dad, you know, <laughs> work. It was like that. It felt very old fashioned. Yes, over there. Yes, ma'am, right there. Uh, for the record, I'm not that crazy about The Hobbit. I like The Lord of the Rings. I, I like Silmarillion. I'm not, eh, Hobbit's like, eh, it's okay. Um, uh, what, what books made me a reader? Well, I mean, I mean, I literally, I'm old enough, and the schools that I went to school in in South Carolina were poorly funded enough that when I was a kid, I still had Dick and Jane books. See <laughs> Spot Run, Run Spot Run. You know, I, I had all that. And so, I mean, they, they didn't make me a reader. What did I love? I loved, um, uh, like, books of, of, of mysteries and, and spooky stories when I was a little kid. And then um, when I was 10, I really, really hit the gas, uh, the gas pedal when I discovered science fiction, the first book that I read in that, in that regard, besides, like, Wrinkle, of Time, Wrinkle in Time or something like that, was um, uh, The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton by Larry Niven. No one. Okay. No. No, no, no. No one actually read Larry Niven. You read, you read The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton? Did anyone read The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton by Larry Niven? Nope, you didn't. But I read that, then I ended up reading everything by Larry Niven. He became my guy, my intro to science fiction. And then I read everything by, not everything by Asimov, you can't read everything by Asimov, but everything by Heinlein, all that, all that juvenile science fiction by, uh, by Heinlein. And then I read a ton of Asimov and... Fred Paul and uh, A.E. Van Vogt and Jack Vance and, and Henry Kuttner and really deep cut, like, golden age science fiction guys, uh, John W. Campbell, people like that. So I just, and then I just, I just ate my way through. My bro- I'm the youngest of 11 children, and my eldest two brothers bought those books when they came out in the 1950s, and I read all their leftovers when I was a kid. So I had an enormous library of classic science fiction that I read, and then I got into, then I got into tons of fantasy. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I can't see. Uh, middle of, yes, sir. In the middle of the back. Uh, I was wondering what your first comedy gig was. <laughs> For my brothers and sisters, I'm one of 11 children, and so I'm the youngest of 11. So my family was always the audience. I just wanted to be, I, I just wanted to be them, be like them. But the actual first time I ever got paid to do comedy, when was my first thing? Oh, uh, it was a place called Cross Currents, a club that doesn't exist anymore in Chicago. They used to be under the L Belmont L, and that's no <laughs> way. <laughs> Belmont or Cross Currents? You went to Cross Currents? Were you uh, a dick? <laughs> wait, were you a? Uh, wait a second. Were, were you an improviser or a day drinker? Because those are the only two people who went to Cross Currents. What? What were you, you just went there, it was, it was a club. Wow, okay, so I, I performed across currents. That was the first time I went down there to see uh, Del Close and Sharna Halpern and people do the Herald Improv, which at the time, well, Improv Olympic was really young. And I went down there to see what it was and I, and I saw it and I went, I, I have to do this. I don't know what this is, but I have to do this. Long form improvisation and that changed my life. I just, a friend of mine, a guy named Chris Paff said, you want to come down and see this thing? It's, it's improvised one act plays. And I said, how do you do that? And then I saw how you do that, and I was completely hooked, and I performed there about a month later for the first time with my own group, which was called the No Fun Mud Piranhas. That was, that was, the, na- that was the name of our improv group, the No Fun Mud Piranhas. Uh, uh, you're right there, front row. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing tonight? That's a question. I'm doing great. Let's move on. <laughs> What's your question, ma'am? Hey, you want to run the marathon with me next year? Do I want to run the marathon? Yeah. <laughs> 
Could I get an epidural first? <laughs> right there in the middle. You, ma'am, right there. Yes. Just you, 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 ma'am. Yes. What Sondheim role would I most want to play? I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want to play George in Sunny in the Park with George? I mean, that would be a fantastic. I kind of fell in love with. That's kind of when I first fell in love with Sondheim. I already knew his work, but I really fell in love with him when I saw Sunny in the Park with George. And I remember when I was a young young guy, and I wasn't I wasn't in theater school, but I I read the lyrics to Finishing a Hat to my mother to try to explain to her why I wanted to try to go be an artist because that idea of you know. Um, the, the, the romance and the sort of spiritual impulse toward creation that's described, that's sort of inexplicable except through poetry that he describes in that, moved me more than anything I'd ever seen or read. And that was really what pushed me into this life that I live now. So I'd probably want to play George, but you need Mandy Patankin range to, to play that. And anybody? Yes, ma'am, right there. How is COVID changing you personally? How is what? COVID. How COVID done what? I'm, I'm not sure any of us have had enough time to figure that out yet. You know what I mean? I, it was a real, it was, it was a tragedy. It was yeah. what it was. Yeah. It, was, a, it, was, a, it, was a, it was a shock, you know? And they say, like, a major tragedy, shock to your system, uh, catastrophic or traumatic injury, that sort of thing. Seven, it takes seven years to get oh, some wow. perspective on it. So I, I, haven't, I, can't, I can't begin to think that I have the truth of it. I'll say this, it, it changed how I feel about y'all because I missed you a lot. I always liked an audience. But I always, I always really loved, I really, I mean, I took, one of the reasons I took this job, because I knew this job was going to be a challenge, was that the ability to be with live people every night. You know, that's a real privilege to be in a Broadway house and do a show in front of these live people, to have this extraordinary band to play with on, on a given night over here. And... Uh, but man, not having you for 15 months, uh, don't you? Don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you got till it's gone. Uh. And it changed how I felt about talking to people. Like my interview with Bono, which is going to be tonight, would have been very different three years ago. I would not be as relaxed and as, and take it as slowly and and like just keep mm. pushing as much. Mm. Uh, interviewing people over Zoom taught mm. me to just just make it a conversation. You know, which I was able to do at times before, but now it's always my first wow. my, my first objective is to do that. Interviews, which are great and always surprising and improvisational, for me, my enjoyment of them has just gone through the roof. That's, that's one of the biggest ways. Personally, I've reached out to a lot of old friends that I, I, I didn't have time, I thought, before, and, and now somehow I do. Um, anybody up here? Uh, yes, sir, front row. My favorite interview I've ever done on the show? Wow, I've been really lucky. I've interviewed a lot of very interesting people. I interviewed, um, I mean, I, I enjoy interviewing president, presidents. That's a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy, I mean, sort of pound per pound, like solid, you know I'm going to have a good time. Neil deGrasse Tyson's very hard to beat. John Oliver's very hard to beat uh, for an interview. That, that, that's a ton of fun. Tig Notaro, who's on tonight, is, is a ton of fun. Um, I also, I really like Michael Shannon, who's on here tonight, too. I would say that the most meaningful interview I've ever done was um, of um, the, the Reverend uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Andrew Young, who uh, was a um, great civil rights leader and also a mayor of, mayor of Atlanta, a U.S. congressman and ambassador to the U.N., because he knew my dad, and I didn't know he knew my dad. 
But when the writers went on strike in 2007 for the old show, I called my brother Ed and said, what am I going to do here? How do, we get, how do I get through this in the best possible way? Respectful to my writers, but still keeping everybody else employed and everything. And he goes, well, you should stay communicating with your writers. That's an important thing to do. You know, you should talk to Andrew Young about this. And I said, why would I talk to Andrew Young about this? And he goes, don't you know about Andrew Young and Dad? I said, no. And he goes, Andrew Young... The, the, the hospital workers went on strike. My father was an administrator of a hospital in South Carolina. In 1969, the, his, like, he'd only been on the job for like two weeks, come down from Washington, took this job, and the hospital workers all went on strike. And Andrew Young and Ralph Abernathy and Credit Scott King were on the, on the, with, the with the striking uh, hospital workers. And my father was on the administration side, and uh, Andrew Young, and he wasn't the head of the hospital, Andrew Young, who wasn't the, the, the lead on the, on the striker side, Andrew Young and my father went off inside rooms and they would keep talking every day and go, okay, how do we settle this? What do we need to do? And they settled the strike between the two of them privately with the understanding that no one could ever know that they had worked, at, worked this out because neither side was willing to back down. So they worked something out that satisfied both sides. And I didn't know it, and nobody, nobody knew that until I went on air and had Andrew Young come on, and he told me the story of my father's work with him. And that was probably the most meaningful story. You ready to do it? Y'all ready to do the show? Y'all ready to do the show? Happy Holidays from The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. We're dropping your favorite Colbert classics with the biggest stars until we're back on January 3rd with all new episodes. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert weeknights at 11.35, 10.35 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.